Legally Blonde, Suits, My Cousin Vinny. All badass lawyers, all different. Which begs the question, what type of lawyer do you want to be? Don't waste another second thinking, ugh, I don't even know what types of lawyers there are. Trust us, we've been there. Let's put a stop to that once and for all. Go take the 90-second quiz from new lawyer now what coach Angela Vorpal to give yourself a clear picture of the best fit type law for you. Go to www.whattypeoflawyerquiz.com and take the quiz today. Once you've taken the quiz, send us a DM on Instagram to let us know what type of lawyer you got. We can't wait to hear. Hi guys and welcome back to Ladies Who Law podcast. I'm Haley and I'm Sam. And this week we have a very special guest, our first guest of 2024, Eliza Schatzman. So she is the president and founder of the Legal Accountability Project. And guys, I'm not going to tell you much because I really want you to listen to like the full episode and how just my jaw dropped multiple times. Yes. Um it was just it was just crazy. Um, the gist of it is we're going to talk about clerking, okay, in the federal system and what goes on behind the scenes sometimes. Not for everybody, mm-hmm. but for some people. Yep. Um, and just, I mean, honestly, like, more people than you think. Yes. And, you know, we don't have much exposure to law clerking just because, well, in a court, because, um, our school didn't really offer that. So we get to talk about all of the ins and outs of it, um, her personal experience, why she founded her company. And um, yeah, guys, this is just one that you really have to listen to. Also, you know, trigger warning, this is going to talk about emotional and verbal abuse. So just keep that in mind wherever you listen. All right, let's welcome our guest. Help me welcome our guest, Miss Aliza Schatzman. Hi, Aliza. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show. This is one of my favorite podcasts, so I'm excited to be here. Well, we are so, so excited to have you. So will you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm the president and founder of the Legal Accountability Project, which is a nonprofit aimed at ensuring that law clerks, so new attorneys, have positive clerkship experiences while extending support and resources to those who don't. I graduated from Williams College in 2013 and Washington University School of Law in St. Louis in 2019. And after graduating from WashU, I clerked in D.C. Superior Court. Great. So let's go back to law school. So. You were in college. Did you always want to be a lawyer? Like, or did you decide that, you know, in college or when? Definitely in college. I think I went to Williams thinking I might be um, a pediatrician or some kind of doctor. My mom is a doctor. Um, But then I kind of got the advocacy bug in college. Um, So I wanted to do reproductive rights litigation. So like being a trial attorney at Planned Parenthood always knew that I wanted to advocate for issues of importance to me, kind of, you know, provide a voice for the voiceless, that sort of stuff. Okay. So once you decided to go to law school, why did you choose WashU? 
So I took three years between Williams and law school. I interned and then worked on the Hill. I took the LSAT twice, struggled deeply with the LSAT, started at UNC, which was the best law school I got into, knew that I wanted to transfer. And so WashU was the best school I got into as a transfer. So that's how I ended up there. Um, And while I had a good experience, as we'll talk about, the clerkship experience is very closely tied to WashU law. So kind of looking back, it really colors my perception of the law school. And now I try to urge law schools, including WashU, to make some kind of necessary changes. Yeah. So why don't we just like uh, talk about that, I guess, since it ties into the whole going to WashU. So how did this all like start, right? Like how tell the listeners maybe like why you are here essentially and doing this. <laughs> legal accountability project and what inspired everything, you know, the crux of it. Yeah. So when I was at WashU, I realized pretty early that I wanted to be a prosecutor. I wanted to be an assistant U.S. attorney in the D.C. U.S. attorney's office. So I did four different DOJ internships to get a breadth of criminal law experience and then decided to clerk because the messaging at WashU Law, like at all law schools, this is like the most important career move you can make. Now, it is an important career step, but the problem is that the messaging on these law school campuses about clerkships is that they are just uniformly positive experiences, conferring only professional benefits, where you develop this lifelong mentor-mentee relationship with the judge for whom you clerk, which might be a minority of clerkship experiences. And, you know, many people's experiences are overall positive, but this is like any other work environment, except that employers have life tenure and are not subject to oversight or anti-discrimination laws, which makes it, in the worst circumstances, a very problematic and unsafe work environment. So I decided to clerk in D.C. Superior Court. I followed my law school's advice, which was, you know, apply broadly across the U.S., across the political spectrum, um, accept the first clerkship you're offered. And while law schools kind of tell students to do their research about judges and clerkships right now, due to the lack of transparency in clerkship hiring, there's just no information available about judges as managers, the clerkship experience, chambers culture. So I accepted this clerkship, which, as we're going to talk about, was a very negative experience that ended up derailing my career. Um, and those experiences inspired me to launch a legal accountability project to correct injustices I experienced as a law student and a law clerk, a lack of transparency in clerkship hiring, an outrageous lack of accountability for judges who mistreat their clerks, and a real troubling lack of diversity and equity in clerkship hiring and the judiciary. So I guess I would like to start, like, how did you get the clerkship, right? Is there a process, like, you know, at our school, we had like OCIs and like, I think we only had like two people do clerkships. So we're not really familiar with it. So what's the process like? So the process can be very decentralized and is very, you know, law school centric, law school specific. So, and I should also distinguish between state and federal clerkships. So a lot of federal clerkship hiring, which is the focus of top 14, top 20 law schools occurs in June of folks 2L year through Oscar. That's the online system for clerkship application and review. Many, but not all judges hire on Oscar, meaning they will accept and review or not review hundreds of student applications and extend 
offers for interviews and offers for the job within this one or two week timeline in June. Um, so there is a lot of clerkship advising on law school campuses focused on federal clerkships. State systems are much more decentralized. You need to kind of keep track of timelines and deadlines and which judges want paper applications and which accept via email. Some state systems like New Jersey, for example, has a very centralized clerkship application process. They facilitate things really well. Some state systems really do not. A lot of state court judges do not have publicly accessible emails, which kind of decreases applications for them, um, which can be, I mean, a good thing if they want to weed out who is very intentional about the clerkship, but is also really challenging for students because as we talk about these processes, it is a resume, an application, cover letters, um, connecting with professors, uh, polishing these applications, multiple rounds of clerkship advising, creating a list of 50 or 100 judges and submitting all these applications. And like, I'm just scratching the surface of how insane this process is. Like, this is not the only thing that law students do. They have classes, extracurriculars, job applications, like lives. So (laughs) (laughs) it is insane that we have not centralized this process in better ways. And we haven't because one, a handful of judges enjoy the lack of centralization, enjoy the lack of oversight. And two, some of these top 14 law schools enjoy the lack of oversight and the lack of centralization. So that is generally the process. And while it's not LAP's main focus this year to centralize hiring, one of our long-term goals is ensuring that all federal judges hire on Oscar in compliance with the clerkship plan, which means considering two years of law school grades, and that more state systems are centralized too, because it's just gotten really out of hand. Um, But the way I found my clerkship was kind of through my law school. So Okay, so... Once you started your clerkship, like, was it almost immediate or or was it like even during the interview process where you were like, hmm, this is kind of like, I don't know about this. Like, (laughs) was it then or was it when you started or when? These are such good questions. So I was applying for clerkships in 2017 and 2018. Now, late 2017 is when former judge Alex Kaczynski stepped down in the Ninth Circuit following substantiated allegations of misconduct and harassment. Now that was a really fancy ninth circuit judge. I did fine at WashU, but I was not like tippity top of the class. I was not in those rarefied air circles. So I was not even aware of this. And while I certainly had an advocacy spirit, and I think I would have asked the right questions before clerking had I known what they were. I mean, nobody in my circles at WashU law in those years was talking about mistreatment during clerkships. Like, that any clerkship would be less than a positive experience. It was just Mm. not discussed. So I reached out as I was interviewing for clerkships to AUSAs and public defenders who had appeared before this now former judge. And while perhaps there were a few red flags, nobody was like, oh my gosh, he harasses everybody. Mm -hmm. So I go into this interview in September of 2018, um, and it was a little weird, but nothing horrific. And then I did kind of a walk around the courthouse with his then clerks. And they did say something weird to me, which was the judge likes to hire people who wouldn't normally get a shot, like women and minorities. Well, that's it's not the worst thing in the world. Um, so you know, I probably 
Maybe should have evaluated the totality of the circumstances. But he offered me the clerkship on the spot and I accepted it because, you know, it's a clerkship. And um, Mm -hmm. especially kind of as I'm thinking back, I mean, as a transfer, it felt really important to me to contribute to WashU Law and contributing to their clerkship numbers and being like in the dean's good graces is I remember something I felt really strongly as I was emailing her and emailing the clerkships director to tell them I'd gotten this clerkship. So I was doing an internship at DOJ in DC that semester. So I was not on campus when I was interviewing. So I was talking with the clerkships director about having this interview. Um, I later learned, and we'll talk about this, that WashU knew that the judge who harassed me had harassed other clerks and they had opted not to share it with me. Um, and so that is one of the problems we're trying to correct. So your initial question was, was it bad immediately? It was a little weird during the interview, but I was not particularly attuned to like the red flags. And so a lot of what LAP does now with our law school programming is like fundamentally, it's about students asking the right questions before clerking and knowing despite what your clerkships director might tell you that a challenging clerkship is not worth it for the prestige and nobody should willingly endure harassment. We'll be right back. Hey guys, we want to take a moment to talk about something that has been a game changer for us busy lawyers, Audible. Yes, Audible has been our go-to platform for incredible audiobooks, offering an extensive library of thrillers, nonfiction, autobiographies, and mysteries. And guess what? We've got a special treat for you. Audible is offering a free trial to our listeners, and all you need to do is check the link in the show notes. It's the perfect opportunity to experience the magic of audiobooks without spending a dime. Speaking of thrillers, I know you are currently hooked on Never Lie by Frida McFadden. Samantha, can you tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely. The twists and turns in Never Lie have kept me on the edge of my seat during the workday and even when I'm on my daily walks. It's like having a suspenseful companion wherever I go. And for those looking for some financial wisdom, I have been engrossed in My Money, My Way by Kamuku Love. It's packed with practical advice on managing finances, perfect for anyone trying to navigate the complexities of money management. What we love most is the flexibility Audible offers. As lawyers, our schedules can be unpredictable, but with Audible, we can enjoy our favorite books on the go. Whether we're stuck in traffic, hitting the gym, or waiting for a court hearing. So, if you're ready to embark on a literary journey and discover the joys of audiobooks, click the link in the show notes to start your free trial with Audible. Trust us, you won't want to miss out on this fantastic offer. So, do you think that, like, once you saw all the red flags, like, did you think, okay, well I have to kind of just put up with it because this is a clerkship. Like this is like a big deal, you know? Um, or what, how was it? Yeah. So, I mean, I started this clerkship in August of 2019 and the judge was not in chambers the first week. Typically law clerks, the outgoing ones train the incoming ones. Another big problem that I work with judges on a lot, like the judge is the boss. They should be training clerks. So, The clerkship went downhill quickly once the judge and I were in chambers. He would, like, kick me out of the courtroom, tell me that I made him uncomfortable, and that he just felt more comfortable with my male co-clerk. 
He would tell me that I was bossy and aggressive and that I had personality issues, like stuff you'd only say about a female clerk. Mm. Um, the day I found out that I passed the DC bar exam. So obviously a big day in my life. Um, he calls me into his chambers, gets in my face and says, you're bossy. And I know bossy because my wife is bossy. So this, yeah. What? (laughs) This was obviously really upsetting. That was late October of 2019. So pretty early in the clerkship. Um, So I did confide in some attorney mentors who advised me to stick it out. I mean, I knew that I needed a full year of work experience to be eligible to apply to the U.S. Attorney's Office, which was my dream job. It was the reason I had accepted this clerkship. So I do remember like crying myself to sleep at night, crying in the courthouse bathroom, just being desperately wanting to be reassigned to another judge. I mean, my workplace did not allow for that at the time. Um, So I really tried to stick it out. And I do remember confiding in some clerks from other chambers. And one or two asked me whether I thought about leaving the clerkship early. And, you know, I probably should have. But I wanted to try to stick it out. So we transitioned to remote work during the pandemic in March 2020. I moved back to Philly to stay with my parents and worked remotely. And the judge ignored me for six weeks. Um, Calls, text, emails went unanswered. And then he called me up and told me he was firing me because I made him uncomfortable and lacked respect for him. And then he hung up on me. What Um, the hell? Yeah. Yeah. So at this point, um, you know, this is the pandemic. (laughs) Um, I'm working remotely. I'm trying to reach out to like DC courts, channels I thought were open to me. I reached out to HR and they said there was nothing they could do, that HR doesn't regulate judges who are Senate confirmed, and that judges and law clerks have a unique relationship. And they told me I should have known I was an at-will employee. So, you know, he could fire me. Um, so then I reach out to my lovely law school, Wash U Law, and that's when I found out the judge had a history of harassing his clerks, that law school admins, including the clerkships director, who still works at Wash U to this very day, advising students on clerkships, knew about at the time I'd accepted the clerkship, opted not to share that with me because they wanted another student to clerk. Um, so this was obviously really devastating. Um, and in the back of my mind, I was already thinking I should file a judicial complaint. So I connected with some judges who could help me do that. Wanted mm-hmm. to wait to file it because I thought the judge would retaliate against me being the kind of person that he is. Yeah. Um, so it takes me a year to get back on my feet. I secure my dream job in the DC U.S. attorney's office, moved back to DC in June of 2021. Yay. Uh, and I was two weeks into training when I received some really devastating news that kind of altered the course of my life, um, found out the judge had given me a negative reference on my background investigation. I wouldn't be able to obtain a security clearance. And so my job offer was revoked. What? Oh my God. I literally like, I'm sorry to interrupt, but like, I'm so boiling. I, I I can only imagine. Oh, Okay. Like, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that at that point it became kind of urgent, like filing a complaint. Yeah. So I did, I did that. And then I hired attorneys who represented me on a contingency fee basis, which is important. And then I participated in the investigation into the now former judge. 
So <laughs> we'll get there. Um, so we were partway through that investigation when I find out he's on administrative leave pending an investigation into other misconduct. Hmm. Um, the U.S. Attorney's Office was never alerted of that. Um, and then he was removed from the bench in November for reasons other than mistreating his clerks. And then we continued to pursue private settlement negotiations after my complaint was dismissed. Um, and in January, he issued a clarifying statement to the USAO addressing some but not all of his outrageous claims about me. But by then, I mean, the damage had been done. It had been way too long. And I was pretty much blackballed from what I thought was my dream job. Oh. And so I share this experience like a lot now in public forums and legal scholarship in law school campuses. And what I always, always seek to underscore, my negative clerkship experience is not rare, but it is one that is rarely shared publicly due to the culture of silence and fear surrounding the judiciary. And that is like the most important thing we can do is change the clerkship culture. Well, because, you know, if he can get away with it, other judges are going to be able to get away with it as well, right? So if one can be held accountable, then hopefully other judges won't do the same, right? I mean, so in my work now, uh, we'll talk about some of the formal ways that we're collecting data about judges who mistreat their clerks. But I also spend a lot of time speaking with law clerks. And I, I can now say confidently with the data and receipts to back it up that there are judges in every single circuit probably every single federal courthouse and many state courthouses who are mistreating their clerks every single year. They are not being held accountable. They are getting away with it. And my experience is evidence that one person can make a difference, can create real change. And so it is so important as I am speaking with clerks, like stand up for yourself, file a complaint, speak out like these people can and must be held accountable and they can't, be held accountable unless people are willing to speak out. Like, I know it is scary talking about all the crazy shit that happened to me, mm -hmm. but like, I've also founded this nonprofit and I'm now like a thought leader on these issues. Yes. And that is awesome. And so like, you can create real change. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Props to you. First and foremost, I mean, like snaps, claps, all the things, girlfriend, seriously. <laughs> I mean, I just can't believe what you're telling me, right? I mean, we did not have... Clerkships were just not really offered to us. We did not go to a top tier school, right? So hearing this and knowing how freaking coveted those clerkships are, how much people are pushed to them to know that a majority of clerks are being mistreated is mind blowing to me. And I'm just so happy that you shared your story here today because I mean, this has to be talked about. It has to be talked about because it's horrible. I mean, I, I didn't know what kind of harassment you were going to tell me, but this is just, this is like psychological abuse. Yeah. And these issues are so shrouded in secrecy and it is on, is Everyone is on everyone to change the culture. It is these law schools perpetuating this toxic, positive messaging. Yep. It is the judiciary refusing to implement any workplace protections, any oversight, no Title VII, nothing. And then it is the legal profession. So prioritizing the hiring of former clerks. And the word you use, coveted, is exactly the right one. It means clerks put up with so much shit 
for that prestigious gold star, that clerkship. And on the back end, it's like you can never say anything less than positive about the clerkship or it is a red flag about you. No, it is a red flag about these judges who are harassing people. <laughs> like, that's insane ideology. <laughs> when you think, like, if you take a step back, guys, and, you know, all they out there listening, you're like, do you hear yourself? That's insane. That's insanity. And then you really take a step back and then you realize, like, the judges, like, the judiciary, like, they're the people dealing with our laws. <laughs> Yeah, like what? What's going on? What's going on? They are on, above y'all? the laws they enforce. It is really outrageous. It's That's really a problem. Outrageous. That's a serious, serious fucking then problem. I'm going to say that fucking problem. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, use a lot of expletives when I talk about this. So. I mean, that, it's scary. It's scary to think of it like that because the no oversight. I mean, also the retaliation bit is. I no Title Seven. Yeah. I mean, are you kidding me? You enforce this and then you don't even follow it. Your what? Okay, yeah. sorry. Yeah. As an employment lawyer in my past, that's just insane to me. It is insane. We need more people saying it's insane because it is Congress who can implement Title VII protections. The Judiciary Accountability Act is proposed legislation that would do that. And it is so urgently necessary that we extend Title VII to the federal judiciary. There are more than 31,000 unprotected judiciary employees Law clerks and federal public defenders. There is a woman named Karen Strickland, a former federal public defender who is suing the judiciary right now, making constitutional claims because she is not protected under Title Seven. So, okay, so I have a few questions. First is for the student. Well, I guess you've graduated by then if you're a clerk. So for the clerk out there who is maybe having an experience that's less than ideal. What can they do? Who can they reach out to? Let's say they don't really have like an attorney mentor that they can go to, right? Where's the next place they, they can start this like standing up for themselves? Good question. So I really think of the nonprofit that I created as the resource I wish existed, not just as a student applying, but as a law clerk experiencing mistreatment, as a former clerk trying to hold the judge accountable, trying to stand up for myself. So We should also distinguish between, we should again distinguish between state and federal courthouses. So if you're a state court clerk, there is some sort of HR, some sort of employee resolution office. There is some sort of point of contact. You can go there. Uh, The federal system has several levels of employee conduct offices, directors of workplace relations for each circuit, an employee dispute resolution or EDR coordinator in your courthouse a National Judicial Integrity Office. Now, the problem with these, both state and federal, is that when we talk about human resources, we talk about it protects the employer. Now, the judiciary doesn't love me saying this, but those are like semi-useless resources. Like they will always protect the employer. They will always protect the judiciary. You can go there. You should go there to report, but you should understand that your redress options are limited there. So the first thing you should do if you're being mistreated is you should confide in people, mentors, friends, other clerks, a judge and another chambers you trust. You should take notes. You should forward yourself emails. You should keep track of what you are documenting and where it is documented. Uh, You should reach out to the Legal Accountability Project. I often connect mistreated clerks with attorneys who can help and they help pro bono. Um, You should, you know, talk to the internal workplace relations office and try to get reassigned. And ultimately, if you cannot, it is not a bad thing to leave your clerkship early to find a new job. 
I've received a lot of outreach recently from clerks who quit their clerkships early, who said it was because of hearing me speak that they were empowered to go find another better job. Yes. And like, if you are going to a law firm after your clerkship, I've often seen people start six months early and the law firm will often let you do that. I mean, you have to be candid, somewhat candid about why you're leaving. Um, but get yourself out of the bad situation. Like you should yes. not endure workplace mistreatment. And one of the most important things I can underscore about my own experience for people who think they're going to like stick it out. Uh, I tried to stick it out and the judge still gave me negative references that derailed my career. There is no guarantee that a crazy malicious judge who's mistreating you is not going to give you negative references and get you blackballed from future jobs. And I hear about that all the time from clerks. The only way to in any way prevent retaliation would be to file a formal complaint, document it. And then the back end, you can say, don't contact the judge. I filed a complaint against him here. It's documented. And this is what happened to me. Um, Mm. So the options are not ideal, but it's about getting yourself out of the bad work environment. And then I really think more clerks should file complaints, should stand up for themselves, should hold judges accountable. Um, I mean, If not, if you don't, and most don't, the person who harassed you is going to get away with it and they're going to keep harassing other people and stopping the cycle of mistreatment starts with sharing our stories. So what can us lawyers, right? Like we're not clerks anymore. Um, What can we do to help, you know, this whole keeping judges accountable? Oh, there are numerous things. Um, I think we should talk about what the Legal Accountability Project is doing and how attorneys can help with that. Um, But I also want to talk briefly about like the bystander question, which is what can you as somebody who's not clerking do to help clerks who are mistreated? Um, People who are experiencing workplace mistreatment are often very fearful and very ashamed. So being a good bystander, being a good friend is about listening, being supportive, believing survivors. It is absolutely crazy to me that we still talk about like believing survivors in 2024. But I know one of the deans at Washu Law has told people she does not believe me, which is <laughs> outrageous. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, so it's about like believing and affirming those who are experiencing mistreatment. And if you are in a position to help connect them with an attorney who can help, you should. Um, but so what the Legal Accountability Project is doing is we work with law schools to fix the clerkship system by helping them spread candid, transparent information about judges to more students. So our big initiative is this centralized clerkships database, legal tech that democratizes information about judges. So students and alums who are considering a clerkship have more information about judges. Um, right now, Law schools are telling students to, quote, do their research about judges before applying. But like, what the hell research are you going to do about judges when there's no information accessible? The law schools are funneling you uniformly positive and false information about judges. They will only connect you with alums who had a positive experience. The ones who had a negative experience are not responding to the outreach or they are not being fully candid about their experience. So we have created a third-party independent solution where law clerks can share their experience anonymously. They're not anonymous to me, to LAP. They can be anonymous to student users after I verify their clerkship status. So it's a post-clerkship survey. It asks a variety of questions about your clerkship experience. When this goes live this winter, 
Students at participating law schools can log in and read thousands of surveys about judges, actually get the information they need to make an informed career decision. I interface with about 80 law schools trying to convince them to participate in this initiative. It is very hard. Clerkship advisors can be quite hostile and say outrageous things like, we're blessed to work with only good judges. All our alums have a positive experience. And harassment isn't happening. It's just women adjusting to their first jobs. And from my law school, um, it's our official policy not to warn students about judges who harass their clerks. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, these, yeah. <laughs> I, um, I'm just shocked. That the people Legal Accountability Project is also about holding clerkship directors accountable for the outrageous yeah. shit they say to and about their students. <laughs> and um, just totally like keeping them in the dark. Yes. Um, look, law schools benefit from funneling students into bad clerkships to fluff their clerkship numbers, yep. especially because many of the judges mistreating their clerks are also very prestigious judges, and the law school prioritizes their relationships with them knowing they mistreat their clerks over their duty of care to hundreds, thousands of their students, which is wrong. Um, but if you think this is important, you can tell your law school they should participate in this initiative, that this would have been valuable to you as a student considering a clerkship. This yep. would be valuable to the legal profession generally. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, we've got to, we got to do more. We got to talk about this more and we, all law schools should you know, have this on their mind. I mean, even our law school who had a few people go now, I'm so curious, like what was their experience? Like, you yeah. know, Oh gosh. Yep. This issue of mistreatment during clerkships of improving the clerkship system of holding judges accountable. These issues should be top of mind for every law school, every law student, the clerkship, you know, application process is always, but it is happening right now. It is starting in January. It ramps up in earnest this winter. And then during that window in June is when a lot of the hiring happens. It is going to be an insane time when many students are It's going to really fucking hit them. I don't know any information about this judge who I'm mm -hmm. interviewing with. I have accepted this offer and I don't know what to do. They'll be terrified. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, not enough law students are attuned enough to these issues. Like, LAP does a lot of programming. The response is overwhelmingly positive from students. They are very engaged and they are learning. But it's about catching them at the right time to be attuned to this, to advocate for this. And law students need to demand accountability from their law schools. They need to mm -hmm. ask, why don't you want us to have more information about judges? What are you doing? What are you keeping from us? Yeah, absolutely. Well. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We cannot thank you enough. And we love that you are a listener of the podcast and now get to share your story with the listeners and with us. We appreciate it so much. So will you tell everyone where they can find you and if they want to talk to you more about the Legal Accountability Project? Yeah, so they can visit our website, legalaccountabilityproject.org, join our mailing list, sign up for resources, donate. I'm very active on social media, particularly LinkedIn and Twitter, but we're on all the socials. And my email is eliza.chotsman at legalaccountabilityproject.org. So reach out to me to talk about how we can bring this initiative to your law school. Thank you, Eliza. Thank you so much.
Wow, you guys, my jaws on the ground. I mean, I didn't really know what to expect, but you know, it just solidified to me emotional and verbal abuse are real and it can cause such a toxic and negative environment. And, and, and sometimes you feel like, oh, I should, I should just put up with it. And then it still comes back to bite you. And the fact that there's so much that's going on behind the scenes, you know, we both know from personal experiences that law schools sometimes aren't so transparent with their students, right? And so this is one of those eye-opening moments. Maybe you've already had your eyes opened, but if you haven't, you know, just be cognizant of your your law school. Also, if you're applying to law schools, like maybe look into these kinds of things. Um, You know, we would have never known had we not heard her story. So, um yeah, just shocking, crazy, and big props to her for speaking out. Absolutely. And like she said many times, these positions as clerks for federal judges are extremely, extremely coveted. And that's the reason that it makes it so hard to talk about this because, you know, so many... (laughs) people benefit from having the the wool over your eyes and sending you on your way. So we are really, really, really happy that she came on here and shared her story and talks about her organization that she has created to help facilitate the process of opening up people's eyes to what goes on behind closed doors of clerkships and what you should do before you get a clerkship, what the questions you should ask, you know, there was so much discussion about not knowing what she was supposed to ask and what she was supposed to look out for. And that is exactly what she's changing. And we're just so happy and proud that one, she's a listener and two, that she came and joined us on the podcast. So if you guys are interested in helping out in ways that she talked about during the episode, definitely go to our show notes and reach out, check out the Legal Accountability Project on ways that you can get involved. Um, I know that we're interested in helping out in any way that we can, um, especially just bringing awareness because so many of you are going into these clerkships sometimes very blindly. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's just good to know, you know? Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, as always, the biggest compliment you can pay us is recommending our podcast to a friend as well as rating it and subscribing wherever you listen. And if you want to follow us on Instagram at the ladies who law podcast, we're always posting on there. Um, we've been sharing a little bit more into our daily lives lately. So definitely check that out. All right, guys. Well, we hope that you have a great and warm week and we will talk to you again next week. Bye guys. Bye.